I want to begin this morning by uh, showing you something that was a prized possession of mine back in high school. And, and our pulpit really doesn't allow me to hide anything right here like, like some pulpits do, so I had to sneak it off behind the drums back here. But, but this was one of my, my first big purchases uh, as a teenager. This is a this is a Philips Magnavox FW320C. I don't know if the letter matters or not there, but but this was. Let me tell you about this unit and all the great features of this. Maybe I'll just work my way down. It's got it's a three CD changer, so not just one. You can put three in here and don't have to get off the couch for three or four hours, depending, depending how much music is on each of those discs. Uh, AM and FM radio. So not only can you get all the great radio uh, music stations, but that AM band that has the Cardinals games. I mean, if you knew how many hours of Cardinals games this thing <laughs> tuned into uh, in my growing up years, it was, it was quite a few. Um, dual tape decks. So you can listen to those old cassettes, but you can also copy them and you can record off of radio. So when you want to make that mixtape for somebody that, that's real special to you, this will do that for you. Um, it's got auxiliary input in the back, so you can plug in another device. It's got, what's on here, digital sound control. It's got dynamic bass boost and all of it all of it can, I didn't bring the remote, but all of it can be controlled from a remote, just a remote control. I mean, this is, this is it, right? I mean, if I, if, I can, if I can borrow a phrase from the 90s when I got this, this is all that in a bag of chips. I mean, this is, remember that one? <laughs> this is, boy, this was, this was something. And, and the, the students this morning are probably looking at me like I'm crazy, like what's so good? I didn't bring the speakers. This is just the, the unit, but, but this thing really was that great, you know? It, it was, like I said, I had my eye on this, saved up for it, bought it. But my suspicion is I could probably not find anybody in here this morning that would pay me, I couldn't remember exactly how much I paid. I think it was like $150. I don't think anybody in here would probably pay me $150 for this this morning. Really, this stereo, now it's as clean as it's probably been in a decade because it sits in my garage and I use it from time to time, but, but that's been, it, it's been relegated to the garage and actually it's, it's, uh, uh, it's been somewhat replaced by a more portable unit that I've acquired recently, so it's even taken a step down from that really. But uh, it, it, it has lost its luster, right? And not just because it's kind of dusty, but... But there's things that have come along that, that um, are better, and it's, it's surpassed it, right? It, it does things that, that even this wouldn't do. The book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to spend our time today, is a book that speaks of something else, and someone else, really, that came along that was much better than what came before. So uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles there, Hebrews is a 13-chapter book. It starts on page 1001 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to turn there. 
In many ways, it's, it's, a, it's a linchpin holding the Old and New Testaments together. It, it gives us a framework and a way to interpret the Old Testament, especially the Old Covenant, in light of Jesus. And I would state that the main theme of Hebrews is this, and it's the title of the sermon this morning. Jesus is superior and worthy of our faith. So before we look at the text itself, I, I wanted to give just some quick background. Hebrews is the most debated book in the New Testament when it comes to identifying the author, identifying the original audience, and identifying the original setting for the book. None of those things are explicitly stated in the text. What we are left to do is make educated guesses. Uh, because the book makes so many connections with the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, most scholars agree it was probably written to Jewish Christians. So followers of Jesus who came out of Judaism and, and were very familiar with Judaism. Uh, many, many would say it, it, uh, it was written between 60 and 70 A.D. 70 A.D. was when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and so most think it was written in the decade before that. The purpose of the book is, is to provide a, a convincing case for why those Jewish background believers ought to maintain their faith in Jesus and not go back to Judaism. That's, that's what the book is driving at. And we might ask the question, why would a person ever consider rejecting Jesus to go back to Judaism? Why would you do that? And really, there, there were a few reasons when we think about the context in the first century. One of the reasons, Judaism was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. And, and without going into detail, during the reign of Julius Caesar, the Jews helped him win an important battle. And so because of that, Julius Caesar treated Jews favorably, and, and it continued into the first century AD. As a result, you know, as long as the Jews paid their taxes, didn't re revolt against Rome, they, they were kind of left alone to worship as they pleased. They didn't have to worship the Roman gods. And so in the very early days of the church, Christians were simply seen as a sect of Judaism. And as such, they were afforded the same protections as Jews. But as, as time went on, as their numbers grew, Christians began to be viewed separately. And so they lost those protections. And they were even specifically targeted for persecution in Rome by the Emperor Nero in the mid-60s, right around when we think this letter would have been written. So there might have been that temptation to go back to something that was a little safer in, in terms of how they were treated by Rome. Uh, another reason, because Judaism was, <clears throat> excuse me, was a, a legal religion, and because it was well-established, to be a Jew meant that you had a synagogue. It meant that there was, a, there was an established social network that you could be a part of. And so converting from Judaism to Christianity meant that you were often opposed by Jews. Uh, you were driven out of the synagogue. You, you, were, you were ostracized from your social circle. And you can, we can look at the book of Acts and see how Paul was treated as he converted from Judaism to Christianity. And, and another reason, there were, there were zealous, zealous Jewish rabbis 
who spoke out against belief in Jesus and, 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 and tried to point out how Christians were neglecting to keep the God-given laws of Moses. They, they sought to convince Christians that their, their beliefs in Jesus, that, that they'd been misled, that, they, that they, they were on the wrong track. And so all that to say there was cultural pressure, there was relational pressure, there was religious pressure that would have tempted those Jewish Christians to turn away from Jesus and go back to Judaism. And so this letter to the Hebrews was written to strengthen their faith in Jesus and encourage them to stand fast in their faith. And so as we dive into the text, for the first nine and a half chapters, the writer of this letter took great pain to spell out in detail how Jesus, how the new covenant he instituted is far superior to the old covenant, the old sacrificial system of the Jews. And, and you can see in your sermon notes the various points that the author made regarding the superiority of Jesus. So the first four verses of chapter one, highlighting how Jesus is the superior revelation of God, sets the tone for the whole letter. And, and so I want to read those first four verses this morning. Chapter one, verse one, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he, appointed as, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to, the, to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the writer notes the difference between two different ages. Long ago, something happened one way, but in these last days, something has happened in a different way. Long ago, God revealed himself through the prophets, beginning with Moses and the law, going all the way up through John the Baptist, but now, God's superior revelation of himself is seen in Jesus. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Which means there is no better way in which God could have revealed himself to mankind and brought about mankind's salvation than through Jesus. There is no better way than what he did. He is superior. But how so? How is he superior? Well, the writer goes on and he's superior to the angels, the, the created messengers of God. The rest of chapter one, chapter two speaks to this. Angels are, are majestic beings that inspire awe and fear and, and reverence whenever a human comes into contact with them. There's a reason angels in the Bible tell people not to fear. That's why they lead off with that. There's something about them that's, that's incredible. They are God's agents who carry out his will upon the earth and in the spiritual realms. And yet we see that even they cannot compare to the Son of God become flesh. They cannot compare to Jesus. He is the one crowned with glory and honor. He is the one under whose feet everything is put into subjection, angels included. Jesus is superior. 
to the angels. But with that, the writer of Hebrews is just getting started, right? He's also, Jesus is also superior to Moses. Now, when it comes to Moses, there wasn't anyone else in the Old Testament with whom he could compare. Maybe King David, but, but because David was a king and Moses was a prophet, it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges in a way. Moses was the one whom God spoke to in the burning bush. Moses was the one whom God met with and personally spoke with on Mount Sinai. Moses was the one who's, uh, who, who met with God in the tent of meeting. Moses was the one whose face shone brightly after he would meet with God. Moses was the one through whom God gave the first covenant. Moses instituted that covenant, which officially made the Jews God's people. Moses led the people through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land. I mean, that, that was Moses. And yet, Jesus is counted worthy, we see in chapter 3, verse 3, of more glory than Moses. For all that Moses did, and it was a lot, and it was incredible. Jesus has more glory than that. All of Moses' impressive accolades came as the result of God's presence in his life. Jesus is himself God. He is the presence of God. The, the close relationship between mankind and God through the person of Moses was just a foretaste of what would come in the person of Jesus. Mankind and God are fully and eternally united together in Jesus. Jesus is superior to Moses. And the writer goes on and says that he's superior to Joshua as well, who came after Moses. Joshua took up that mantle of leadership and, and he led God's people into the promised land. Moses took them to the edge. Joshua took them in. Joshua directed them as they won victory over their enemies. He, he divided up their inheritance and, and sent them out then to enjoy it. And yet Jesus provides a true and lasting rest and an eternal inheritance that far surpasses that of Joshua. And it's not even close. And the writer just keeps going. Jesus is superior to the high priest under the Old Covenant. Over, over three chapters are spent showing both the validity and the reality of Jesus' identity as the great high priest. It, it, it is a valid identity because it's in the order of Melchizedek. That's a fun name, isn't it? Melchizedek. I remember quizzing as a seventh grader when we were quizzing over Hebrews. And I don't know, we would just find excuses to say the name Melchizedek. If we jumped and didn't know the answer, we'd just say Melchizedek because it was fun. But, but in addition to that name, he's a somewhat mysterious person. He's only mentioned briefly in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and here in Hebrews. What we know about him is that he was both a priest and a king of Salem, presumably the city of Jerusalem before it was called that. And Melchizedek lived in the time of Abraham, so he was a contemporary of Abraham long before the covenant was enacted through Moses. I mean, we're talking probably at least 500 years before Moses. Long before priests came from the tribe of Levi, long before kings were chosen from the tribe of Judah. So because Jesus' lineage was not from the tribe of Levi, some might argue, well, he can't be a high priest. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. 
But Hebrews is arguing that Jesus' priesthood goes back prior to the tribe of Levi, to the time when Levi's great-grandpa Abraham gave a tithe to this Melchizedek. Jesus is a valid high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the writer says. And the reality of Jesus being the great high priest is that his priesthood is vastly superior to all the other high priests who came before him. Those priests would come before God on behalf of the people, but they always had to, they always had to offer sacrifices for their own sins first. But, but listen to the reality for Jesus. This is in chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for, the, for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So after Jesus made that one perfect sacrifice of himself on the cross, he's now exalted to the right hand of God. He presides as the great high priest over the new covenant that he has instituted. He is far superior to those high priests who came before him. And then speaking of that new covenant, Jesus and the new covenant he has enacted is superior to that whole old sacrificial system. And, and this is noted in chapters 8 and 9 and 10. Under the old covenant, the, the, the tabernacle was erected as a copy of this one that's in heaven. And in that tabernacle, there was an entire system of repeated sacrifices and offerings which took place in order to deal with the problem of sin. And within the tabernacle, there was, there was an isolated holy of holies right in the middle where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, over which the, the mercy seat was placed. And, and the problem with this system, according to chapter 9, verse 8, was that gifts and sacrifices which were offered there could not perfect the conscience of the worshipers. In other words, it didn't truly take away sin. All those animal sacrifices, all those, all those uh, crop sacrifices, it, it could not take away sin. Chapter 10 speaks of them really as a yearly reminder of sins. Jesus, however, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We are sanctified through Jesus Christ offering himself. So what that old sacrificial system struggled to accomplish and, and indeed never could accomplish, Jesus did once and for all through offering his life on the cross. Jesus did away with the first covenant in order to establish the second. He is far superior to even those spotless lambs that were offered every Passover. Jesus is superior. I told you the writer of Hebrews makes a case, right? Really spells it out detail by detail. To Jewish Christians who were being tempted to turn back 
from their faith in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews makes this compelling case to not do that. It'd be like taking a step back from today's technology to this old stereo here. Except that the gap between this stereo and today's technology is minuscule compared to the gap between Jesus and the new covenant and the old covenant that came before. The Jewish Christians would have been foolish to turn away from that, turn away from Jesus. We too would be foolish to turn away from Jesus and turn towards something different. And so the writer of Hebrews wanted the believers to see Jesus for who he really was in all his glory and superiority and then to hold fast in faith to him. It wasn't just about the knowledge. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of knowledge that's being driven at in the first nine and a half chapters. But then after that, it, the writer's saying, okay, now, now hold fast. Hold fast. In chapter 10, verse 19, there's that great transitional word, therefore. So in light of all of this that we've just been talking about Jesus, now stand firm. Persevere in faith in him. And, and in, in those first nine and a half chapters, the, the, the writer has given, given some warnings about turning away, but, but he really then focuses on holding fast to faith. The reason a call for perseverance is needed is because there are things which seek to undermine our faith. There are things which seek to cause us to turn away from Jesus and turn back to something or turn toward something else. Uh, the temptation to sin is one thing that can undermine faith. When, when our focus becomes satisfying the, the, the passions and desires of our sinful flesh, then, then we lose sight of the superior Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as the writer notes in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In those moments when sin looks so appealing, we must look to Jesus we must remember how great and awesome and loving he is, how he's described in the first part of Hebrews especially. And, and as we do that, as we look to Jesus, our desire for sin will decrease and our desire for him will increase. The things we look at and think about guide our desires. They just do. Uh, there's a reason companies advertise products to us over and over and over. They know this. They know that what's in front of us, what we focus on, we begin to desire. We can persevere in faith by looking to Jesus, putting him in front of us over and over and over, focusing on him instead of other things that would draw us away. And it leads then to perseverance. Um, cloudy vision can undermine faith. Chapter 11, that, that, that great chapter, sometimes called the Hall of Faith, it gives example after example of people in the Bible who didn't exactly have a clear vision regarding the purpose and works of God. They, they, they didn't have all the answers about why or how God was doing what he was doing. Uh, Noah, so just looking down through some of these examples, Noah was warned about events unseen. He didn't know what a worldwide flood looked like. But God warned him, and in faith he acted. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Sarah didn't know how she could have a child in her old age. Isaac and Jacob spoke about future blessings 
over their children. Uh, Moses left Egypt, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, following him who is invisible. The faith of these individuals is highlighted because in the midst of cloudy vision, they didn't have all the answers. They held fast and they lived out their faith, their, their trust in God. We, we are told that faith is not about believing in what we can see. Rather, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. It's trusting in the things that we can't see, we can't understand. When, when, we, when we can't see or understand what's taking place, it, it might cause us to question our faith, but in reality, that's the point in which faith begins. So rather than, than turn back because our vision or our understanding is a little cloudy, the writer of Hebrews urges us to lean in and hold fast to our faith in God, just like so many that have come before us. That was true in the Old Testament before Jesus. It's still true for us, even living after Jesus. There's still things that, that, that we have to take by faith. because we don't, we don't see it clearly. We don't understand it clearly. Hardship can, can undermine faith in Jesus. Sometimes the hardship comes in the form of persecution. Uh, at the end of chapter 10, we, we see that mentioned. It might be uh, being mistreated or rejected or scorned or mocked for our faith. In those moments, we must not shrink back or, or, or throw away our confidence in God. Our, our faith is not misplaced because someone else disagrees with it or because someone else is opposed to it. We ought to stand uh, stand firm and hold fast. Um, but hardship, it might, it might come through persecution. Sometimes hardship comes in the form of uh, discipline. You see this in chapter 12. There's times where God shows his love to us by disciplining us for our own good. That loving discipline is meant to bring us back to him. Now, it, it's not pleasant right? It, 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 it may be painful. That's why it's discipline. But rather than question the author of our faith, we must persevere in faith, knowing that his discipline affirms that we are sons and daughters of God who are loved by him. That's why he's disciplining us when he does, because he loves us. And so we can hold fast to him in faith in the midst of that. The letter to the Hebrews ends then by urging the believers to hear and receive this message and live out their faith in Jesus. This is who Jesus is. He presents all of that in the first nine and a half chapters. And then he says, hold fast, right? There's all these things that are going to try to cause you to turn back, but instead, hear it, receive it, hold fast. Their faith in Jesus would be evident by their actions, so the big question for us today is, what does a letter written to Jewish believers struggling with the temptation to return to Judaism have to say to us? And after all, we're not Jews who've spent the first part of our life living according to the Old Covenant. That doesn't describe us, does it? Well, you know, just like the Jewish believers were facing cultural pressure, relational pressure, religious pressure to turn away from Jesus. 
We do, don't we? We face those things as well. I mean, cultural pressure, our, our culture tells us what we should and shouldn't believe about so many different things. And many times it's contrary to what Jesus tells us. The pressure can be great to downplay or hide or turn away from our faith in order to keep from being targeted as a follower of Jesus. And in those moments, we must not turn away from Jesus. Uh, Relational pressure can cause us to turn away from Jesus. Maybe we're afraid of losing a relationship if our faith becomes apparent. Maybe the person we're, we're dating doesn't have faith in Jesus, and, and we feel pressured to choose between, between that person and our faith. You know, that could be, could be a tension. Maybe we're married, and, and we feel led by Jesus to do something in faith, but we aren't sure how it will be received by our spouse, and so we feel this pressure to kind of suppress it or ignore it. In those moments, we must not turn away from Jesus. Now, religious pressure, I mean, uh, there can be religious pressure put on us to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus. It, it, it might be a way of thinking that, that seeks to make our salvation dependent upon our actions rather than the sacrifice of Jesus alone. It might be other things that we are told must be added in order to validate our faith in Jesus, dressing a certain way or voting a certain way or, or being involved in a certain thing. You know, it could be anything that's, that can be press, put on us as pressure to be added to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in those moments, we must not turn away from Jesus. What can be done when we face these pressures? Because like the Jews, we, we face those pressures too. How might we hold fast to our faith in the superiority of Jesus above all things? Turn with me. We'll end this morning in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. And remember, the, these are the words written immediately after the superiority of Jesus has just been proclaimed thoroughly for nine and a half chapters. And then we read this, starting in chapter, I don't know if I said chapter 9 or 10, but it's chapter 10, verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how do we persevere in faith in Jesus? Well, we draw near to God. We, we speak with God. We open ourselves to God like we would with any person that we want to draw near to, grow closer to. Um, we hold fast to our confession, it says. Our, our confession ought to be what we read in the Bible. And, and so a great way to hold fast to our confession is to remind ourselves of what is written and remind ourselves over and over and over again. We consistently meet together, right? When, when, when I'm feeling weak in my own perseverance in my faith, I benefit from others who can encourage me and spur me on. 
In the same way, I can benefit others, spurring them on in times where they feel weak in their own perseverance and faith. We do that as we consistently meet together. Uh, we keep focused upon the day. The return of Jesus is the day being referenced. The, the day is coming when our faith shall be sight. We sang about it in one of the songs. That day is coming. The things we couldn't clearly see at one time will be fully revealed to us. And at that time, we will, we will find our faith to have been placed exactly where it needed to be. That day is coming. Jesus is superior. Nothing else even comes close. All those songs that we were singing in the first set this morning, I mean, it, it was, it felt lyrically overwhelmed by just all the proclamation of, of hope and forgiveness and cleansing. And I mean, it was just one after another in those verses. And it's through Jesus. It's not through the old covenant. It's not through anything else that, that we might be tempted to turn towards in this world. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone. It's the only place any of that will ever be found. So it, so it might not be Judaism and adherence to the Old Covenant, but whatever it is that tempts us to turn away from Jesus, Hebrews urges us to persevere in our faith in him. Gives us all those let us things in those verses in chapter 10. He goes on, he says, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's persevere in our faith. Jesus is superior. And nothing better is going to come along either. Right? There's not, he's not going to be replaced by anything else. He is superior now and forevermore. And he's worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our faith now when we can't see it all clearly. And he will prove himself to have been worthy of our faith once we can see it all clearly. It's only in Jesus and it's only in him alone. Let's stand together. Come before God. And I think this book leads us to respond in two ways. One, worshiping, praising, thanking him that he is superior, and then asking for the strength and the wisdom and the perseverance to hold fast to him as we walk through this life. So let's do that. God, we, we come before you, and uh, I'm just so appreciative of the picture of you that we are given in the book of Hebrews. You are incredible. Jesus, you are, you are superior. You are glorious. And we praise you for that. God, there is nothing, there is no one like you. And I thank you that you came to earth then, that, that we can find the forgiveness and the redemption that we need what the old covenant never could deliver, you did. And we praise you for that this morning. I thank you for the, the great songwriters that, that gave us those lyrics and the songs we've already sang. I thank you for the ones that we will close in singing that, that echo the same thing. We give you praise for that this morning. God, would you receive 
our worship of you. And would you help us to hold fast in you? We're, we're, we're weak. We don't hold fast as we should. Our, 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 our vision becomes distracted. We look to other things. God, but we're not going to find anything better than you. And so would you remind us of that? Would you give us the strength and the wisdom to look to you each and every day? God, guide us in that. Do your work in us. Help us to support one another in that as well as we continue to meet together. God, you are glorious. You are superior. And you're worthy of our faith, and we're so thankful for that. And it's in Jesus' superior name that we pray. Amen.